The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the Freeze Art Fair's 20th anniversary, Icelandic artist Hilda Gunnar Birgisdottir and a Matisse painting at the Met. The Freeze Art Fair has turned 20 this week and is only growing in its ambitions, having acquired the Armoury Show Fair in New York and Expo Chicago. So what should we make of Freeze's continuing expansion and what's the mood at Freeze London and Freeze Masters this year? I talked to Tim Schneider, the art newspaper's acting art market editor, who's over from New York for the fairs. In Reykjavik, in Iceland, the artist-run Sequences Biennial opens on Friday. A former curator of the event is Hilda Gunnar Birgisdottir, who will represent Iceland at the Venice Biennale in 2024. Tom Seymour went to the Icelandic capital to interview her. And this episode's work of the week is Open Window Collier by Henri Matisse. The painting is a highlight of the exhibition Vertigo of Colour, Matisse, Durin and the Origins of Fauvism at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. I speak to Dieter Amory, the co-curator of the show, about this landmark painting in Matisse's career. On theartnewspaper.com you can access our new subscription offer. You can get a full subscription to the art newspaper and full digital access for £1, $1 or €1 for three months. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With. And do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the Freeze Art Fairs are back in London this week, and this year is the 20th anniversary of the fair that's now called Freeze London and the 11th edition of Freeze Masters, together bringing galleries from 46 countries to the two tents in Regent's Park, with 28 galleries having been at every fair since the first in 2003. I spoke to Tim Schneider, our acting art market editor, about this year's fairs, the anniversary, and Freeze's ambitions for the future. Tim, we're standing in the middle of Freeze London just before it opens for the second day. What's the mood been like this year? I would say that the mood has been fairly buoyant, honestly. I talked to dealers a lot yesterday, and they were really pleased with the turnout, with the right types of people being in the booth. And last year, that was a little bit of a challenge, I think, to put it mildly. But the question then ends up being, well, the right people are here, everyone is excited, what does that mean in terms of sales? Yeah, there's an interesting quote from Alex Logsdale from Listen Gallery who said it's not as bad as everyone said it was going to be, but neither is it as good. So in the sense that there's obviously still an awareness of the economic struggles, but there's a buoyancy because maybe people might have been expecting something a bit worse, in other words. I think we're in a really funny time right now because obviously there's a lot of really ugly stuff happening in the world, but also from an economic standpoint, I think that people have started to feel like maybe we've already hit the bottom. Now, whether or not that's true is a separate question, but my sense from, again, talking to both dealers and collectors yesterday is that there is business to be done and they're interested in doing it. It's just that it's not quite as automatic as it was for the past couple of years when we were living in a zero interest rate environment. Right, exactly. Um, One of the aspects that may have helped it feel a bit buoyant is the fact that dealers seem to have gone for quite tried and tested stuff. So we're standing right now by the Gagosian booth, which has a load of paintings by Damien Hirst. Last year it was Jade Fadogatimi, who is a young artist, and apparently it sold out as well. But, but there's a sense in which this is sort of emblematic of a wider trend to go with what you know a little bit. 
I think that that's generally true, especially at the higher end of the market. Look, if we're talking about the Hearst booth, those paintings were on sale for 450000 to $1,000,000 each. And to my understanding, the booth sold out. Now, if you're going to pay a million dollars, I think that most people would say, yeah, I want to pay that for somebody whose name I can trust. They don't want to pay that price right now for an artist who might be on the rise and maybe something crazy happens at auction and you go to seven figures when no rational person would advise you to do so. But I think that in a fair environment, in the kind of economic moment that we're in right now, the big sales that we were seeing absolutely were the types of names like Hearst going further back, Louise Bourgeois. There was a bronze sculpture that Hauser & Worth sold of hers yesterday for $3 million. So, yeah, these are not surprising names, but that's kind of the point. Right, exactly. There's a really interesting thing that lots of dealers seem to be talking about, particularly this year, which is about cross-collecting. Now, when the Freeze Masters Fair opened in 2012, there was a big fuss about cross-collecting and about how there was an intent on lots of dealers' parts and the fair's part to kind of make this happen in a way, to, to get people collecting across time, across genre, across generations, etc. Lots of dealers are saying this is actually happening now, aren't they? Tell us more. So I'm going to preface this by saying that I have always been of the opinion that cross-collecting has been much more the standard than most people expect. In my experience, the number of collectors who say, actually, the only thing that I want to collect is artists who were making work in California between the years (laughs) 1945 and 1975. Like, there just aren't very many of those people. (laughs) And we get tricked into believing that when we see these major collections come to auction and they're extremely well curated over the years and whatever else. That being said, the phenomenon that you're talking about when it comes to cross-collecting, some dealers have really pointed to that being a phenomenon that has been on the rise, especially among younger collectors. And that doesn't surprise me at all because I think that younger people in general just don't adhere to genre in anything in the way that they used to. Like, I remember, I'm an old millennial, Ben. <laughs> And I'm, G- I'm Gen X, so... <laughs> well, I, tell me how your experience was, but when I was in high school, I remember a big part of your social identity was what kind of music you listened Absolutely. to. Like and you, you were, were tribal, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Like, you were a rock kid, or you maybe you listened to pop music, or whatever, and, like, you couldn't do both. But if you talk to anybody who's under the age of, like, 35 now, be like, oh, like, which kind of music do you listen to? You're like, what are you talking about? Like, I just listen to everything. <laughs> So it doesn't surprise me that younger collectors are coming to me like, yeah, I don't know, this old masters thing is cool. I'll grab that. And then there's a young artist who's 25, also interesting. Maybe they go great together. Let's do it. Yeah. And I suppose that's really interesting from the point of view of a dealer because it's like, okay, so what are they going to go for? So if, if this is a phenomenon, what are the kind of highlights that we can bring into these collections? Who are the artists that are going to attract them? And I, th- I suppose it's probably a bit too early to know exactly what they're going to go for, right? I think that that's probably true, but again, to tie it back to the idea of the mood being kind of energetic, I think there is a way in which, and I'm not saying this is true of everyone, but I think it just feels very open right now, in a sense. Like, whether it's the cross-collecting thing, whether it's the fact that 
well, the moment is a little uncertain, so maybe I should just try something I wouldn't normally try. Like that, I think that that adds a certain kind of level of excitement and possibility to things that, frankly, helps any art fair, which they, I mean, look, they're not necessarily always the most exciting things in the world to go to. Right, yeah. Is it, but it's interesting also that Philida Reed, who's a, a you know, London-based dealer, works with loads of like, very highly esteemed artists, but they're not multi-million dollar deals that she's doing. She's talking about how it's harder to get the really new onto people's radars and get them to focus on that. And, and I guess that's a, that's a sort of symptom of what we were talking about earlier and that idea of tried and tested versus complete novelty and brand new names. I'm going to go back to an anecdote from when I was working in the gallery world when I was younger. <laughs> and I will never forget my boss at the time telling me, and this is somebody who had been dealing hard for decades, that it is actually as hard to sell a $10,000 photograph as it is to sell a $500,000 painting. So if you have to choose between the two, you might as well sell the higher value thing. (laughs) I mean, you can't argue with the logic, but that is a real thing. I think that especially when you're dealing with maybe collectors who don't have such huge resources to work from, if you're asking them to pay 10,000 pounds for something, that could be a bigger chunk of their annual income than asking someone who is a millionaire to pay $200,000 for a painting by a tried-and-tested name. That's really interesting. Just want to look more widely at the fairs. It's Freeze's 20th anniversary. You've done a piece about Freeze where you talk to Amanda Sharp and, and Matthew Slotover, who founders of Freeze, about that journey, if you like, that first fair and what the intentions were. One of the things that really strikes me when I'm at Freeze is that they kind of got it right first time and it's always tweaks. It's evolution, not revolution. So the fact that London didn't have a fair and then suddenly it had one and it was really good seems to me to be really, really crucial to why Freeze is what it is today. Yeah, and I think that it's also a symptom of just how much more wide open the art fair sector in general was back then. Today, we're used to there being hundreds and hundreds of these things every year, and obviously only a few of them really matter still. But if you cycle back to when the original freeze opened in 2003, the best counts we have at that point say that there were less than 68 fairs every year. And the idea that London just didn't have one for contemporary art at all now seems mind-blowing. But you're right. Even in that environment, you could do a bad fare and it wouldn't actually have the impact. But they did manage to capture something, I think, that has proven to be really sustainable. One of the things that you point to is that they got Mark Hicks, the, at that time kind of celebrity chef in London, to, to do restaurant cooking in the fair. And now, again, that seems like fairly de rigueur for fairs. But at the time, that was a novelty idea, a new idea. Yeah, I talked to a number of people who it stands out in their mind that it's like, I don't know, the first time you got the toy that you wanted most at Christmas, it was like, oh my God, there was good food at this art fair. <laughs> it was, it's like burned into their memories. And, and you're right, now we take that kind of thing for granted because basically everybody tries to do it. But at the moment, it was a revolutionary idea and I think it served them very well. Right. There's a very good quote from Amanda in that piece where she says, basically, we got good galleries and that's why it worked. And they kind of kept that up, haven't they, effectively? Yeah, that is true. And that is really important because no matter what else you do around the edges of a fair, no matter how great the food is or how seamless the lines to get in are, if there's not actually any good art there, it (laughs) kind of doesn't matter. So 
sometimes these really complex things really do just come down to very simple ideas, and that's one of them for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, I think both collectors, critics, other gallerists are really sensitive to when they know that there's a bit of filler in a fair on there. They, 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 you know, you, you do sense. Hang on a second. What's that gallery doing here? If it's not, if, if it isn't at that sort of requisite standard. Right, and the bigger these things get, too, the less time people have for the mediocre stuff, honestly. I can't remember the exact number of galleries in this fair, but, I mean, we're close to 200, I believe. It's something like 160, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're walking around the aisles. It's packed. There's probably openings that you want to go to that night or dinners you have to get to or whatever. Everyone is looking for something to really wow them, I think. And that's why it's difficult for people who maybe don't have the programs that really top-level dealers do, or alternatively, really young galleries who have really great eyes and are identifying things that are new and exciting. Like You have to bring your best thing to the table to get noticed here. And I would argue that that's a good thing because competition makes you actually perform better, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to talk about Freeze Masters for a bit because I am conscious, having been to every single one of Freeze Masters fairs, that I'm feeling it's looking a bit stale. But I don't know if that's me, having been so many times, or whether that's a thing. Because it seems to me that the spotlight section, which has always been the most dynamic section because it's sort of getting close to contemporary, the new studio section this year... Also, there were literally contemporary artworks in it that referenced the past, and therefore it's sort of close to that. So those bits feel like they get refreshed every year, but much of the rest of the fair feels a bit stale. But is that just me? What are you hearing about Freeze Masters from collectors and so on? One thing that struck me yesterday was that a fair number of people I know who live in London basically said exactly what you were saying. It's like, Freeze Masters, here we go again. It's all the same stuff. Then I talked to some Americans that I know, and they're like, have you been to Freeze Masters? It is really a remarkable thing. (laughs) So there is a way in which there's a kind of regional bias at work here. Like, I'm not saying that every single British person believes that the fair is dusty and boring, and every single person from elsewhere thinks that it's amazing. But to widen out a little bit, this is a challenge that old masters and older work in general has right now and i think that what you're seeing and what you personally were experiencing when you're talking about these sectors of the fair that are designed to try to do something new is that it's really hard to get people excited about old work if you're not presenting it in some kind of a new way and you can do that in any number of different ways or using any number of different strategies but If your hope is that you can just put what is ostensibly a great canonical work from a couple hundred years ago on the wall and somebody who's a 30-year-old millionaire is going to walk in the middle, that's what I want right now. (laughs) It's probably not going to happen. Right. Let's talk about Freeze generally because earlier this year there was this big moment where it it acquired the Armory Show, the very well-established New York Fair, and Expo Chicago, also very well-established. What do you think it's doing (laughs) I think it's a really good question. There are a lot of people trying to figure that out. To me, what I think you're seeing in that acquisition is an acknowledgement by the biggest fair brands that if they want to keep expanding, they can't do it anymore by just adding even more new events onto the annual calendar. Fairteague has been a thing for a long time, and I think that there's just an acknowledgement that we can't do more of these things. And so the notion that Freeze, which just launched a new fair in Seoul 
a year ago. Probably it's not that wise, I'm assuming, for them to say, you know what, let's try to launch Freeze Singapore yeah. or Freeze Jakarta or I yeah. don't know. Yeah, yeah. Take your pick. And this is something that we're also seeing outside of Freeze as well. Art Basel obviously has Pari Plus in the pipeline. That starts next week. And technically, that's a new event, but also that event exists because it just came in and cannibalized an old event. It yeah. took over the venue. It took over the same week that FIAC used to have. And so when you put these things in conversation with one another, you see that actually there is maybe this ceiling that we've reached. And so if these brands want to continue to expand, they have to do it in other ways. Right. But the Armory Show is, is in a way a more famous fair in New York than Freeze New York, right? So is the idea that it will remain the Armory Show or will there be a kind of merger? I mean, do we know anything about the specific plans? What we know at this point is just what they're telling us, which is that they plan to operate both fairs as they are under their existing names with their existing teams. And the only real change that has been gestured towards at this point is rearranging the schedule because right now Freeze Soul and the Armory Show basically happen on top of one another, which is probably not that great. But we'll see what happens. I don't know. I think that there are a lot of possibilities, a lot of speculation about what it all means, but we're not going to know just yet feels a little like, and this may be too crudely put, but it's sort of art fair world domination battle between Freeze and Art Basel right now. (laughs) I think that there is a lot of truth to that at the end of the day. And as these things get more expensive, the reality is that if you're not showing at the best among them, I think it's an increasingly hard thing to say, well, this is still worth my money to try to do if you're a dealer. Tim, thank you so much. My pleasure. You can follow our reporting from Freeze at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. And if you're at the fairs, do pick up our daily newspapers. The fair continues until Sunday, the 15th of October. Coming up, Hilda Gunnar Birgisdotter in Reykjavik and Henri Matisse in New York. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The leadership of the National Museum of Qatar and the Museum of Islamic Art, both in Doha, Qatar, projected images of the Palestinian flag onto the exterior of both museums within 36 hours of the Islamist group Hamas launching a violent invasion of Israel. The surprise attack on Saturday morning against communities bordering the occupied Palestinian territory of the Gaza Strip had killed around 1,200 Israelis by Thursday morning. Israel believes Hamas is holding about 150 Israeli hostages inside Gaza. Meanwhile, the death toll from Israel's retaliatory attack has also risen to 1,200, with about 5,600 wounded, according to the Palestinian media. The number of Gaza residents displaced by the war has risen to 338,000. Sheikha al-Mayasa, the sister of Qatar's ruling emir Tamim bin Hamad al-Tani and chairperson of Qatar Museums, shared images of the projected Palestinian flags on the evening of the 8th of October. Many historic landmarks around the world, including the Empire State Building in New York and the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, were lit with the colours of the Israeli flag in solidarity with the Israeli people. 
The Museum Langmatt in Baden, Switzerland, has provoked an outcry with its intention to sell three paintings by Paul Cézanne, among the more valuable works in its small collection, at a Christie's auction in New York in November. The museum houses the Impressionist art collection of Sydney and Jenny Brown, about 50 works in total, in a villa designed for them where the family lived for two generations. The collection and house were bequeathed to the City of Baden in 1987. The City of Baden and the Langmatt Foundation say they need to raise 40 million Swiss francs, about $45 million, to keep the museum operating and the foundation plans to use the revenue from the art sales to set up an endowment fund to secure its future. But Tobia Bezola, the president of the Swiss branch of the International Council of Museums, has described the planned auction as outrageous. And finally, new tests have confirmed that a set of fossilised human footprints in New Mexico are between 21,000 and 23,000 years old, making them the oldest evidence of human life in the Americas. Additional methods of dating have validated the previously disputed age range and opened the door to further research into the extended history of human life on the continent. The new estimate is a verification of tests completed in 2021 by the US Geological Survey, in which small plant seeds embedded beneath the footprints were used for carbon dating. Experts have eventually hypothesised that humans arrived on the continent between 16,000 and 14,000 years ago. You can read these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This October, Christie's brings a full calendar of auctions brimming with extraordinary art and objects. The Collector online sale series returns to Christie's London, New York and Paris as the international platform for connoisseurs and collectors of decorative arts with a selection of important English, European and 19th century furniture and works of art, silver, ceramics and gold boxes spanning the 16th to the 20th century. This season, Christie's is honoured to present six pairs of coronation chairs specially commissioned for the coronation by Their Majesty's King Charles III and Queen Camilla, with two pairs being offered at each sale site. The online auctions open for bidding on the 13th of October. See christies.com for more details. If you are in London enjoying everything that the art world has to offer this October, stop by Christie's at 8 King Street in St James's for the best of 20th and 21st century art. Their dedicated auction series continues with two live auctions on the 18th and 19th of October, showcasing the breadth and diversity of British and Irish art from the 20th century to the present day. Highlights include a monumental sculpture by Dame Barbara Hepworth and the mural Robin Denny created for a 1959 commission by Austin Reed Limited in their shop at 113 Regent Street. Discover all this and more in person during the auction previews at Christie's London, New York and Paris, open to the public with free entry or virtually on christies.com. Welcome back. Before we head to Reykjavik, some news about the latest conversations on our sister podcast, A Brush With. As the international art world descends on London for Freeze Week, the A Brush With podcast features my conversations with three artists with major London shows this autumn. Yinka Shonabari at Stephen Friedman and Christea Roberts, Claudette Johnson at The Courtauld, and Sarah Lucas at Tate Britain. I went to Brixton Market and I felt, you know, as soon as I entered the fabric shop, first of all, I identified something of my childhood because people do wear those fabrics in Nigeria. But then, you know, I started a conversation in the shop and they told me the history of the fabrics. I always imagined that the fabrics were authentically African. And then they said that the fabrics are Indonesian-inspired fabrics, uh, then produced by the Dutch and then sold in West Africa. And then I realized that actually authenticity itself can be questioned, you know, what is authentic and what isn't. And that open question led to my use of the fabrics. 
I knew straight away that my drawings of Black people were not going to feature furniture or um, references to their lifestyle in terms of housing or, or location because I, I really wanted to centre things on the body itself and tell as much of a story as I could with the body. A big part of it is that I think about it pictorially and I think, how am I going to use space in this work? Where is the body going to sit? You know, it's going to have a centre and it's going to extend out from the centre and as it moves towards the peripheries, um, the space is going to play more of a role. I like using real things. I like the fact they already have a reality of their own. I like using used things because they seem to have some of that feeling of how they've lived their life already about them. And even if you're casting a chair in concrete or something, all those um, idiosyncrasies and maybe scuzzed up bits and creases were from use make that extra interesting than just going and buying a brand new chair or something. That's A Brush With, Yinka Shonabari, Claudette Johnson and Sarah Lucas out now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the 11th edition of the Sequences Biennial, the Icelandic Contemporary Arts Festival, opens in Reykjavik this weekend. An artist long associated with the Biennial is Hildegunnur Birgisdottir, one of its former curators, who's Iceland's representative at next year's Venice Biennale. Fifteen years ago this month, all three of Iceland's investment banks defaulted, sending the island country into economic freefall. Birgisdottir's work reflects on her country's dramatic pivot towards tourism and its commodification of the country's folkloric culture. She is also a film star. She appears alongside Ragnar Kjartansson, arguably Iceland's most famous artist, in Soviet Barbara, the story of Ragnar Kjartansson in Moscow, a documentary screening in cinemas across Europe now. The film explores the artist's experience of exhibiting at the VAC Foundation, a huge new museum funded and built by a Putin-aligned oligarch in Moscow in the weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine. Our museum's editor, Tom Seymour, travelled to Iceland to speak to her. Hildegunner, you've been selected to represent Iceland at Venice next year. When did you find out? How did you take the news? <laughs> I found out very many months ago. I know it was summertime. It was not this summer, so it must have been like more than a year ago <laughs> that I <laughs> learned this and I had to keep it a secret for half a year, which was interesting and, and kind of nice. I was kind of freaked out because it's, it's one of those things that one strives for mm. or like you could only imagine you know when you're studying art that one day you might be at Venice so that happened and I just screamed inside <laughs> and you know then drove home to my family to kind of understand that they were not as excited as me <laughs> which kind of brought me back to to earth and I'm experiencing the happy medium of being honoured but not too um, freaked out. Well, congratulations. Thank you. You're representing Iceland. Do you, do you feel a responsibility to represent Icelandic identity? Do you feel a responsibility to represent the very unique landscape that is Iceland? How, how are you approaching the job? Uh, no, I don't feel like I am representing anything else than my art, I guess, I must say. I think that has always been the agenda or like the emphasis uh, that the artist that gets selected has total freedom of just doing their art and representing their art. Of course, you are a representative of the art scene as an, maybe a sample, mm. not necessarily speaking for all, or you, you don't have to have any unified things happening in, in your art. Uh, and there's no pressure from the government or anything like that to, to do 
such a thing. Uh, at least for me, if I were maybe a more kind of politically <laughs> involved artist with a kind of traditional sense of what politics in art is, maybe um, I would get to know the the boundaries or, you know, what, what can't be done or has to be done. But I was, as you mentioned, selected. I did not apply, which also helps me to just validate the fact that that somebody wants to see what the things that I do so I just right. continue on doing that and I I represent my art there first time in Iceland for me I get the impression that you know tourism is has developed and changed dramatically over the course of the last 10 years and Icelandic people are sort of struggling with how much their culture is maybe being commodified to a little bit and people are obviously fascinated with society it's a fascinating place is is it fair to say that your work sort of reflects that in any way is that an honest assessment yeah I mean I think my art is the way it is because I am a tiny white lady that happened to be born on a tiny island in the Atlantic and <laughs> anything that I make is is from that perspective. Right. So it has to reflect my reality in some sense. And one of the specificities about being brought up on this island is that we have seen extremes in very a few lifespans, kind of like capitalism came with us overnight, you could almost say. And that's an interesting thing. And I think because we are such a tiny society and also the fact that it came overnight, <laughs> it makes it a very nice Petri dish to kind of look at this system that is commercialism or capital or a value system. Uh, because some of the things just don't work in such a small society and some of the things are just so new that you have the contrast to the old, a very rough contrast to the old as, you know, my grandma grew up in a turf house and then, you know, I was like, give me my Game Boy, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite the extreme. So, um, yeah, I think the reason I do the art that I do is is perhaps because I was born on this island, but... Maybe it doesn't have so much to do with nature, but maybe it has everything to do with nature because there's maybe not a lot of nature in my art. And at the same time as preparing for Venice, you're working on other shows at the same time. You've got a big show at the Museum of Art and Archie Can you tell me a bit about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting one. A friend of mine who's a curator artist, he had been asked by the Art Museum in Agurere to do a collection show, like a show on the collection, which is kind of like... Uh, I think it's their birthday year, so they're like kind of looking at themselves, like reflecting. And uh, one of the things was to do like a, something with the collection. I think they almost always have like some sort of collection show going on, but they, this one was supposed to be bigger and they wanted an outside curator kind of have a look at it. And it's an interesting collection because it's a small museum that hasn't maybe had a lot of money to buy work or so. So it has accumulated work through other means, a lot of gifts, a lot of local artists, like, you know, somebody niece or, you know, it, it's almost like some of the things like our presence from our neighboring societies or like a friend village in another country. So it's like a very random but kind of interesting uh, collection of things uh, wow. that is in there. And uh, he was like kind of overwhelmed with that from a curatorial perspective because he, he was like, I'm kind of bound as a curator. I couldn't do too much. But then he thought maybe I'll invite an artist to uh, have a look. And he, uh, you know, suggested this to me if, if I found it interesting to work with his collection. And I was extremely interested in doing so and said yes also because I think it's actually kind of nice to breathe in oxygen when you have like a large assignment like 
or like uh, an exciting thing to do as uh, like Venice it's nice to have other things to kind of coexist with it and that it doesn't become this kind of tunnel but rather just one of the things that you're doing sure and it also kind of like helped me understand what these art pieces are so now I have this ability to work with other people's art and it just somehow uh, gives me some sort of vantage point on my art as right. well or my art objects and how they can be handled somehow <laughs> very postmodernist <Groped>, yeah <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned that your grandmother grew up in a turf house and, you know, I've spoken quite a lot to people while I've been here about how quickly Icelandic culture has moved, probably since the Second World War when the American military base was here. Talk to me about, like, that generation. And another thing I've been talking to people about is is the sort of role that folklore plays in, in Icelandic culture. And a lot of the contemporary art I've seen has a sort of dialogue with that, not so much yours, but other people's. Can I just get a sense of, like, how that belief system plays a part in Icelandic daily life here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely because uh, it's just been such a lively part of our um, upbringing and, and, and stuff like that. Even though my grandma was, I don't know if she was brought up in a turf house, but she definitely spent time in turf houses and, and kind of like, <laughs> I mean, it's intense how, how quickly the society moved. But she was also the one that was in Benidorm like every year <laughs> came home with leather skirts for everyone and like she was like she was quick to <laughs> adapt to this new lifestyle maybe also a reason why I don't work with folklore she never told me any of those stories right <laughs> but yeah I think it's just very close to us it's it's not that we have to kind of dig back or go back to our roots it's just there in our faces folklore we're like building roads around the stones of the hidden people I mean that's very close sure so it's just a reality. It's not like a thing that we dash on to make things interesting or, you know, it's just, yeah, our bread and butter, I guess. It wasn't necessarily for me and thus I do not work with it so much. I'm here to cover Sequences, which is a uh, art spaniel that's been running, I think, since 2006. And there's a much more sort of formalised relationship now between the museums in, in Reykjavik and, and Sequences. But, you know, it was an artist-led festival quite spontaneous one sometimes you're a former curator of sequences like can you talk me through the significance that the festivals played if it's contemporary art in Reykjavik for the last 15 years or so yeah well, you were talking about tourism and tourism was kind of starting in that time like really peaking and right. suddenly we had people coming over like midwinter that hadn't happened before right. they were coming over for airwaves this music festival and we decided or like I think a, a group of people were like really interested in like making something that could benefit the art we're having all these people over we could have like a a coexisting visual arts festival that would take place at the same time and we we had this group coming over and it, it was a way to be at home but still expand I guess share what's happening here to the outside world but I think what happened is that sequences became a place where artists looked at art so it became a very like the biennial it was an artist uh, art festival it wasn't like you would make it during sequences it was not this this expert thing that it was supposed to be in the in the beginning but it became a place where we saw fresh art new art time-based art because it, it started off as a, a time-based festival and still I think is a little bit and it became a place where you would see something new, something fresh. And then slowly also people came from abroad to exhibit as well. That became like a part of it. And then 
and you would like meet people that were, you know, also dealing with maybe mediums that are not very commercial uh, and stuff like that. So it became this raw art festival that was kind of for the artists themselves. Mm-hmm. I also noticed that you're uh, a bit of a film star right now because you're in a movie which is being played in Iceland in a, in Reykjavik and it's about Ragnar Karlsson's experience in Moscow and you were also exhibiting in Moscow yourself at the VIC Foundation. Can you tell me a bit about that experience and, and how that played out for you guys? Yeah, well, that was a huge thing. So they got invited to do this enormous project and decided to curate a show for this museum uh, built by oligarchs. And one had to kind of make up one's mind if if that was something that we would want to do. They asked their friends and people they adore in art <laughs> to come to a show in Russia. And that's something that you have to think really at that point think really hard about like is that something I want to be part of I was thinking like could I do like a gay Trojan horse Uh, (laughs) you know you really or should I boycott and stay away and like in my experience it's always been kind of experience has always added something so to go there talk to people I had been to Russia several times but in like the dawn of I don't know hope I guess where gay rights were being established and that was amazing. And then to return then to do this project uh, some 20 years later or so was devastating to me. (laughs) And I felt the heavy gaslighting the the nation has kind of like undergone for the last decade or so. And then, of course, we were there at this awful time where everything pivoted and they invaded Ukraine, I guess, a few weeks after the show opened and it got taken down. Yeah, but that was very much a decision by Ragnar and and a group of you. You you were very firm about the fact. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there was just no part of any one of us that wanted the show to go on. And especially for this project that Ragnar was doing with Santa Barbara, refilming this show, Santa Barbara. I mean, most of his actors that were doing that show uh, were from Ukraine. So they just woke up that morning and were like, you know, there's no way they're going to acting out Santa Barbara in an oligarch museum, the moment that nation had invaded their nation. It's just insane. Yeah. After Venice, you've got other shows lined up post that. Can you tell me about like what the plan is once you've had this big moment in your career to represent the country you were born in and have grown up in? Like, you know, I'm interested to know how you sort of navigate your career from that point onwards. Yeah, exactly. I'm very not, I guess, aware of my navigation. It's a (laughs) random roadmap I'm using for my life in general. So in the same way I was describing earlier, I'm just doing my art and I'm going to do a show in Venice. And and then I think it's nice that Venice is not like an end point. It's just a a moment. (laughs) And I have some shows lined up. The favorite one that I have on right now and and have in my mind and I'm working on, like I have this weird show in Akureyri where I chose all the works from an Excel sheet I got sent. Then I have Venice and the next show after that is a tiny cafe in downtown Reykjavik. Love that cafe, yeah. <laughs> Mocha cafe, where I will do watercolours. Gorgeous. <laughs> so uh, that's important to kind of foresee a future, but I also really want it to be a very subdued and nice future that is going to be well-lived rather than too fancy. And the last thing I wanted to ask about is there's this library in the centre of town in downtown Reykjavik since I've been here, I've, I've seen some stunningly beautiful libraries and these very sort of interesting architectural spaces. Reading is 
and the sort of like history of literature is, is a very, very significant part of Icelandic culture, is the impression I get. But there hasn't been a sort of formalised telling of art history prior to this explosion in contemporary art in the city. It's interesting to know like what sort of role libraries and reading plays in Reykjavik culture and, and also in like artistic culture. How, how would you sort of characterise that? I know it's a big question. Yeah, well, um, let's cover that. Um, <laughs> so text is above all, I guess, when you are from the the country that wrote the sagas. You know, that's that's how we identify right. first and foremost. So if I were a writer and I was doing the writer's Venice, you know, the, then people just constantly banter me with the sagas. This is what we do. We read sagas. We we can read the sagas. We can still, you know, we understand the language that it was written at that time. So uh, reading is huge here and visual arts was just something that was in the shadows and we didn't kind of like become contemporary until maybe the 50s or, you know, it, we were late to that scene. So we don't have this massive artistry. You as a, or, or me as a contemporary artist, I don't have this burden of painting or burden of like uh, old bronze sculptures on my shoulders. We don't have them, but we have this sagas thing. So I guess we're all probably artists, musicians, always inspired in some way of that history Um you know, reading has been such a huge part of our identity. So I think that always plays into all of our arts and way of thinking, I guess. We're quite conceptual. That's our kind of like late history in modern art today or contemporary art today. It's like our cornerstone is conceptual art, kind mm. of. And I guess with the public libraries... They just seem like very, very fundamental parts of, of broader culture in the UK, libraries have been decimated by our government, but here they're really, really celebrated, I'd say. Yeah, I, I mean, they, they are like the last frontier from capitalism, I guess, or like how everything has to have a value or a money tag on it. It's a place where, you know, you can just read and get educated or hang out and not buy anything for an entire day. So it's like... Yeah, I think they're really important institutions in a healthy society. The irony with the Icelandic art scene is that nobody had written the history of visual arts because it, there was no history of visual right. arts. Of course there were. There were people that were doing, you know, amazing drawings and paintings, but it was not like a cohesive thing. So it was always like a told thing. So when I was studying visual arts, the art history of Iceland was told to me by my teachers. So it's just like... This happened in this year. Did you know that this artist always grew up? Did, 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 you know, so there was just like these <laughs> tales, oral, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which kind of is freeing as well. Yeah. So, yeah. And now I teach a lot in the art academy, and I can see when I get like a proper uh, European art student come to <laughs> the exchange, and they're just, you know, the blasphemy of like the Icelandic students that just do whatever. You know, they just crush a banana in front of you just because. And the other ones are like, <laughs> you know, you can't just do that. So, I mean, it's freeing, but it's also very naive in some sense. Uh, we have to grow up quite fast when we then uh, enter our uh, global context. I entirely disagree. Never grow up. And uh, thanks so much for your time. I'm going to appreciate it. Thank you. The Sequences Biennial, entitled Can't See, begins on the 13th of October and continues until the 22nd of October.
And finally, it's time for the work of the week. In 1905, Henri Matisse arguably became the most notorious artist in Paris after his works shocked the city's critics and public alike at the Salon d'Automne. Several of the works he presented in that exhibition were made as a result of a trip to Collioure, a Mediterranean village in southwestern France. Among them was the painting Open Window Collioure and Dieter Amery, one of the curators of Vertigo of Colour, an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, tells me about this hugely significant work in Matisse. His life. You can see the image on our Instagram and on the web story for this episode. Dieter, 1905 was an extraordinary moment for Henri Matisse. Can you give us a bit of background as to where he was in terms of his career at this moment? It was actually very early in Matisse's career. He was beginning to make a name for himself in Paris and was certainly highly respected among contemporary artists, uh, Signac and the New Impressionists especially. He'd been exposed, of course, to the work of Gauguin and the work of Vincent van Gogh. So he was already looking at extreme undiluted color in his right. in his years there. He'd had an exhibition as well in Paris in 1904. So he was, he was beginning to develop his language, which, of course, he was doing for his entire career. He lived until 1954. And so why is 1905 such a seminal moment? What happens in this summer that is so revolutionary? In 1905, he spent the summer in a small fishing village on the French Mediterranean, 10 miles from the Spanish border, a village called Coulior a village that was actually Catalan in culture. They spoke Catalan. They'd rarely seen an artist, much less two artists, wandering around with art supplies looking for imagery for their next painting. So they made quite a a stir in the village. It was a modest village. The locals subsisted on anchovy and sardine fishing. He was lured to the south of France in the summer of 1904 by Paul Signac, who had already settled in a lovely house in Saint-Tropez. Signac, incidentally, had been to Coulure in the 1880s. It was only accessible by boat in those days. It wasn't until the railroads extended south to the Mediterranean that artists could actually travel south, and and many did. Many preceded Matisse, even. So Signac urged Matisse to spend the summer in Coulure, and it was a consequential summer not only for Matisse and his partner, Darin, but also for modern art. It was a a summer of experiment and investigation in brushwork and color. And the results shocked Parisian society and, and shocked the critics. But in fact, it liberated color from its natural surroundings, from empirical evidence, and rather introduced color that developed through time and experience and sensation. And that is exactly as Matisse expressed it. Yeah, and that's that marvellous thing about Matisse at this time is that it's, it's about trying to get in touch with his feelings before the landscape as opposed to just the sort of exactly. like, mimetic facts of the landscape. That's right. He's translating sensation into colour and actually structuring paintings using colour. Colour was at the foundation of these paintings, both for himself and for Darin. I should say a word about Darin. André Darin, 11 years younger was invited by Matisse that early summer to join him in Coulure. And it was that partnership that produced the extraordinary material that we have in our exhibition here at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The wonderful thing about Durand, of course, Matisse implores him to come to Coulure in the sense. But then also there's this wonderful thing because Matisse is rather conservative by comparison to Durand, who was a, a complete dandy, right? Oh, 
I don't know that I would agree with that. He had a, he had he'd grown up in the suburbs in Chateau, where he had a studio with Flamenc. Flamenc was already experimenting with extreme saturated color in in marvelous ways. But Darin had barely begun his career. He started painting, I think, around 1900. He was conscripted into the army. So he really hadn't had any time to develop any solid language as a painter. And he recognized that in Couleur, he was in the company of a, of a great master, a master who would, who would shock the world and become extraordinary someday. Right. So Matisse is there with Durin in the landscape. How much of it is he making en plein air and how much of it is done in the studio afterwards? With some exceptions, we don't know exactly what was made in the studio and, in fact, what was made in the studio back in Paris. But we do know generally that each artist was on quite a different path with with different goals that summer, though they worked intensely together and were in passionate dialogue every single day for nine weeks. Matisse wanted time. He was much more measured. He wanted to make sketches in various media, in watercolor, in pen and ink, in crayon, and indeed in oil. I would say that some of his oils in the exhibition are, he's in a sense drawing with oil in in these sketches. He wanted to return to Paris, as he said to Paul Signac in a letter, with enough material to inspire his work back in Paris. And we have certainly several examples in the exhibition of of landscapes, for instance, in in oil and in watercolor that inspired his great painting, The Joy of Life, which he finished off that fall. Darin was entirely different temperamentally and in terms of his methodology. He wanted to return to Paris with as many paintings as he could finish. And indeed, he returned with 30 finished paintings. So we have a great many of them in the exhibition. Wonderful. Uh, so Open Window Collure is an extraordinary piece. And one of the key things about it, it seems to me, is the unnatural colour. And while Durin was still, to some extent, using natural colour, even though it was incredibly heightened, Matisse is using pinks and purples, which dominate this painting, as well as those more natural colours. The Open Window was probably his most important painting finished off in Collure. And one could actually say probably a a milestone in his own early career. Indeed, he was using an extraordinary palette, freely using a great many colors in this painting. But it's not only rich coloristically, it's also rich in brushwork and in its structure. When I first saw this painting, I couldn't believe that it was as small as it is because it's so packed with extraordinary energy and vitality. And if you look at the color, you can even see that he's testing not only relational color, but he's testing the temperature of colors. You have cool pinks, you have hot reds, you have these colors that actually bounce off one another as he has structured this rather ambitious composition that's spatially very, very constrained. That constraining of space, of course, heightens the impression of the painting as a whole, but he's really built that painting in three different orders, I would say. You have the interior inside the French doors of the French window. And by the way, we know this was painted in the second floor studio of a building overlooking the Porte d'Aval, one of the three principal coves of Couleur. So we know this dates from 1905, from that period. We even have a few of his pen and ink drawings preliminary to this. We don't have them in the exhibition, but there are a few pen and ink drawings preliminary to this painting. 
So back to what I was saying, three sort of spatial structural zones, the interior, then the near exterior, where he has an entirely different use of brushwork, curlicues and dots of paint that suggest pots of geraniums and perhaps some ivy on some sort of screen balustrade overlooking the sea. And then in the distance, you have wonderful linear brushwork to define the bobbing sailboats in the, in the distance. It's marvellous, isn't it? And, and one of the things, again, about that idea of achieving sensation is that he absolutely floods our world with light. Yes, he does. Painting. He does. And one technique that these artists use, not perhaps as much in this painting, but certainly very, very visibly in others, is that the ground, the priming ground that, that Darren Matisse used in these paintings became integral not only to their, their structuring of the palette, but to the structuring of light. So when you use a sharp white paint as a priming ground over which you layer the actual painting itself, the white of the paint emits light, especially if you paint in a blocky manner where white appears often in the interstices between brush strokes. Don't see that quite as much here, but if I'm looking carefully, I can identify the shade of the underlayering in almost every painting in the exhibition. It's more obvious in the paintings of Darin, perhaps, than, than in Matisse. And this picture is just so, so rich and so liberating for him, painting in such a, a broad palette of color that has obviously no analogy with what those walls may have been. His walls inside that studio may have been white. The wonderful thing I think about it is that you actually see in this summer Matisse moving towards his own language and separating himself, if you like, from that schematic language of neo-impressionism. So tell us more about that, because before this, he had to a certain extent followed a kind of schema, a kind of order for applying colours and so on. But here he's liberated. That's right. But the pointillism of Neo-Impressionism working in their case in dots, in this case in, in this, this broken blocky brush mark, is really an inheritance of Neo-Impressionism. And indeed, he went back to Paris and continued to tip his hat to Neo-Impressionism, not necessarily working according to the theories that the practice of Neo-Impressionists exhibited. He is at this moment in time grappling with Neo-Impressionism and with the tyranny of the style, as he described it himself. He wanted to overcome the tyranny because it was too prescriptive. He couldn't model with those dots of color simply when color is so overwhelmingly linked to uh, specific dictates in treatises. Now, one of the things that we've learned about Matisse, particularly through Hilary Sperling's biography of him and, and through other studies, is that despite all his assertions of wanting to make art that's suitable for the businessman sitting into a comfy armchair and all those kind of quotes which rather distort his achievement, his life was one of such anxiety that he thought so carefully and battled so hard to achieve this extraordinary luminosity. To what extent was that summer also a, a fraught summer as well as an, a summer of great achievement? It was fraught for both artists. I don't think anyone should see my exhibition and think that this was an easy journey for either one of them. Think of it, Matisse was 35, Darren 11 years younger. Neither of them had made their mark yet in Paris under the scrutiny of longtime critics working for you know major influential journals and newspapers in France. 
they were out on a limb together and absolutely fraught summer where anxiety filled their heads through their days. But I think they were on a mission and I think they managed to, to gain confidence through each other, through dialogue with each other. And I think Amelie, Matisse's wife, who modeled for both of them, was a great leveling agent in their days there. And Matisse had two of his three children there as well. So Deron was very much welcomed into the Matisse family, you know, as an adoptive cousin or <laughs> who knows what. <laughs> right, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amelie is an extraordinary moral support for Matisse, isn't she? she? Is. And right the way through their lives together. Right. Amelie was a rock for Matisse throughout his entire life. She obviously modeled for him, but far more than that, she adopted his his love child, Marguerite, a child he, he had with a woman he hadn't married. She raised the three children, her two sons with him and, and their wonderful daughter, Marguerite, with whom Matisse was very close. She eventually couldn't bear the pressures any longer and the, the women who who wandered in and out of his studio and some he was very close to, as you know. Uh, the story has been written many times. So she did eventually leave him and he did spend his last years in Nice on his own, but with a, a marvelous model who really cared for him in his in his aging days. Lastly, I wanted to reflect on the reception of this painting because it was one of the works which were part of an infamous exhibition, the Salon d'Automne of 1905. Tell us what happened. So Matisse and Derain decided independently, of course, to exhibit some work in the Salon d'Automne of 1905. And they exhibited along with Flamenc and Monguin, Marquet, several others who were also working in a rather bright palette. And they were shown in what was called the Salon Number no. 7 all together with a, an odd so-called Donatello-like sculpture at the center by a contemporary sculptor. So it must have been quite a sight. And indeed, they caused such a stir with this color. Critics said they were at a loss for words. They had never seen such sensational, violent hues ever and couldn't quite describe them in their journalistic criticism. And one of them, Louis Vossel, very well-known critic, who actually was quite sympathetic to what Matisse was doing, but he did coin the term les fauves, literally wild beasts, to describe the artist shown in that salon alongside this sculptor. You know, in jest, Vossel said, this is Donatello among les fauves. I don't know whether I could agree that anyone could match the work of Donatello, but in any event, Les Fauves were, they were considered renegades in terms of their aesthetic language. Indeed, and it changed the path of art history. Dieter, thank you so much. You're welcome. Vertigo of Colour, Matisse, Durin and the Origins of Fauvism is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York from the 13th of October to the 21st of January 2024. It then travels to the Museum of Fine Arts Houston in Texas from the 25th of February to the 27th of May next year. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Alexander Morrison, Lewis Jeb, and David Clack, and David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Tim, Tom and Hilda Gunnar, and Dieter. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.